Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon, everyone. Minister Jonathan Simmons here, and we have a special broadcast that we're doing here, uh, a special afternoon edition of the Clarion Call, where we'll be getting updates live from Ferguson, Missouri, from uh, the state president of the SCLC. While we're waiting for him, we'll set the template down in Ferguson, Missouri. The people are certainly feeling, as Charles King wrote this song, Simply Hear My Cry, as we get ready to hear from Reverend Moss Stetler from the SCLC, live from Ferguson. Certainly the call goes out for righteousness from Ferguson, Missouri, and I dare say all across the land. As we wait to hear from Reverend Mott Settler, we're going to go ahead and pull in uh, someone here from locally from the SCLC. You have heard him on our broadcast before. He's very involved here uh, with making sure that everyone is aware of what is going on in the community, especially amongst young African-American men. He has had several events during the summer uh, simply called Love Feast about uh, against youth violence and incarceration. Uh, Reverend Lionel Gant, welcome to the program, sir. Hey, I'm glad to be here. How you doing, my brother? Doing good, sir. We're going to break in right now. I believe that we have Reverend Mosteller here on the line calling us live from Ferguson, Missouri, on the ground. Hold on, please. Reverend Mosteller, are you there, sir? Uh, yes, I'm here. God bless you, brother. We appreciate you taking time out uh, from all of the things that are going down uh, in Ferguson, Missouri, and we thank you that you were able to call us so we can get this out on the airwaves. For those of you who have just tuned in, we're again speaking to uh, Reverend Mostella, who is, I believe, the state head of the SCLC here in Georgia. If not, Brother, please correct me. And uh, he is That's live right. on the ground in Ferguson. Uh, also along with me is I have another gentleman from the SCLC who is very involved uh, in uh, protests against youth violence and mass incarceration here on the ground in Georgia. Reverend Lionel Gant is with us as well. Uh, well, brother, what have you seen uh, so far in your time period and say the last, you know, 10 to 24 hours there on the ground in Ferguson that you can let people know about? I've uh, been been over the, the ground where uh, where Mr. Brown was killed um, in his apartment complex, talked to members of his neighborhood, um, talked to, to um, uh, some police officials. We've had a chance to talk to the international press from Germany, from uh, Chinese television to some some uh, media from New York, we were really mostly interested in long-term solutions for what caused the frustration and unrest in Ferguson. Uh, 
right about now, um, there's not a whole lot that we can do to calm calm them down. I think they've already calmed down. When I got here, the weather was about 95 degrees, so there wasn't many protesters, mostly media and police. That's what we've got wow. here. Mostly media and police is still about 90-something degrees out here, and it's muggy and hot. Um, it's almost like a blanket over you when you walk outside. Um, so I, I had to come in and take a little rest. I'm, I'm getting up in age. I'm not 17 like you are, Minister Simmons. Um, <laughs> but the people are the people are calming down. And when Eric Holder came, when uh, the Department of Justice, um, uh, the Attorney General came, I think he calmed it down quite a bit. Uh, right now there's a major uh, fight to... Um, Cause the district attorney to um, recuse himself or step aside from this prosecution because the family and the community do, do not believe that he can be objective. Um, I, I, I met with um, Elder Heyman uh, out here, and he carried me uh, all over St. Louis, all over the surrounding communities, uh, and explained all of the demographics, all of the challenges across the last 15 to 20 years. Um, I talked with the NAACP representative and president here in St. Louis. I didn't get a chance to meet with him yesterday or today, but I've talked with him. I've talked to um, one of the ministers who has um, uh, worked with the governor and is on a couple of commissions out here. So what the SCLC, what I came to do is not to be a spokesperson or to do interviews, but I came to try to make a long-term assessment as to what we might be able to do for the people of Ferguson. I think... Um, that we've come to the conclusion that it's, it, it's going to have to be a voter revolution in order to do that. And the, the voters are going to have to register, and they're going to have to get to the polls to change this demographic. Um, the, 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 the people who are ruling this little area, to, uh, Ferguson is a, t- a township of, of about 20,000 folks. That, that's about it. And, uh, and, and it's, it's about 70% black and they're hard to have any black representation, and it's backed up it's on the north-central side of St. Louis. Um, it's got another little neighborhood, a city right next to it. Um, um, uh, it's on the west side. That's on the northwest side, on the Kansas City side of St. Louis. So if you're looking at it uh, geographically, it, it would be on the going toward California uh, from St. Louis. Um, it's probably about... Uh, so like College Park to uh, Atlanta, three or four miles, and uh, from St. Louis. And I'm, right now I've I've come to rest, so I'm about maybe seven miles from Ferguson at this point. Well, I tell Hello? you, it's uh, yeah, I must say it is really a uh, a powerful thing that uh, to see all of this transpiring, and really, I guess the question continues to come back. Uh, as as I talk with different people about what can be done, uh, not only in Ferguson but across the country, and what often comes back to me is is people say, okay, well, we're very concerned about this officer that's done that. Uh, how can we now engage people to coordinate that efforts uh, to help us deal with the crime that we face, even from our own uh, people here and our neighborhoods and communities? So uh, well, I know that both of you. Go ahead. That's a, you you know, Minister Simmons. Uh, I've heard a lot of people talk about that, but that's another subject, a whole other subject uh, requiring a whole other set of 
criteria and evaluation and assessment. Now, when you start talking about black-owned, black crime, that's a whole other dynamic. And we, we right now need to deal with the systems of a city. Um, somehow the, the, the chief of police uh, didn't, didn't, didn't recognize that he had a demographic problem when he hired uh, only three policemen out of the 60-some-odd officers that he had here. Uh, and when, 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 the officer, when the chief of police doesn't recognize the demographic, you're going to have a problem. Uh, I served in the police field for 23 years as the chief of police, as the deputy chief, as the operations officer, as a traffic officer for 23 years all over the globe. And, and um, so you, you come up with uh, two types of police officers all the time. One of them is the police officer that says, um, I am uh, I'm enforcing the law. That's the kind of officer you can talk to and say, officer, I was just making a mistake. This is the circumstances around, blah, blah. You talk with them about that. They're just enforcing the law. But you've got another type of officer that says, I am the law. And you cannot talk to that officer no matter what you say. Uh, you're challenging his authority or her authority. And that's the type of officer um, you, you find in most of these kinds of overzealous kinds of um, uh, incidents. Uh, abuse of authority kinds of incidents. Uh, it's two types. And when you, uh, the hiring practices and the psychology of hiring police uh, is, is what the problem is. And you can't do that unless you have the leverage uh, from from the ballot to determine the mayor and determine the city council so you can make these issues relevant to them because they don't think it's an issue. Um, they don't think it's an issue at all. The chief would never have thought it was an issue. Uh, he says, well, I've got to train them. Well, training, you cannot train white supremacy out of an officer with some psycho psychological um, pro uh, baggage. You, you can't train it out of them. You can take them to training, but they don't take to that kind of training um, um, for, for some reason. And so it's all about the hiring practices and moving along. The, the problem we have now is that white America is trying to back the police officer uh, when he has shot an unarmed teenager, regardless if there was an altercation, regardless if there was a physical uh, tussle, uh, that's no reason to shoot a person multiple times and stand over him and shoot him in the head twice. Uh, and those are the facts as far as eyewitnesses out here are, are, are saying. Uh, that's there, uh, and there's more than one eyewitness, and all of them are consistently saying the same thing. So the problem is not black-on-black -black crime, as many black people like to talk about. Problem is not that. This problem is the hiring practice of a certain type of police with a certain type of mentality that leads to abuse of authority. That's the problem. Secondarily to that uh, is that black people have not gone to the polls. For their 70% of the population, they haven't gone and registered to vote and turned out their vote and put in uh, candidates that are going to respond to the needs of the, the, the demographic of the community. And uh, it's, it's very difficult for a police department that is all white just about to police an all-black community. It's going to be very difficult, uh, demographically it is, because there's a, there's a culture, uh, cultural difference uh, that has to be weighed in and has to be evaluated. Um, and so we, we know that inside the police world, inside policing, you, you, you understand it. And, when you do get the demographic correct, uh, you need community policing so that the police get the chance to know who's really dangerous 
who's really doing damage to the community and get a chance to know the families and the children inside that community. So that those are some of the long-term solutions as I see them from having make an assessment about over eight to ten hours yesterday through uh, throughout Ferguson. Hope well, I'm not talking you made that point. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you made that point because that's something that uh, that has frequently come up as well. The the whole loss of the concept of the neighborhood police officer, uh, and I know that I grew up in a community that was. Um, uh, you know, I had similar demographics, not quite the same as Ferguson, but even the police officers that were white, uh, they were the regular beat officers. We didn't get a different guy in every couple of weeks, every month. And over time, it seemed like this officer kind of knew who people were. We very rarely had a situation, uh, you know, when an officer had to get in a major confrontation. So I'm wondering, uh, is that really kind of almost the answer to the, or at least one of the big answers to the problem based on what you're saying, not only in Ferguson but across the country, this whole it, it, going it, away from the it, neighborhood police officer. It is, and, and uh, the, the second shooting, as I viewed it on the, the tape, they here in St. Louis where the St. Louis City police uh, shot the man over the two sodas and yep. the knife. Again, um, you don't want to second-guess a law enforcement officer, but he came with his gun out and... As soon as the man moved toward him, he shot him several times and shot him on the ground. Um, when we were doing policing, uh, we taught de-escalation, not escalation. You see, to diffuse the situation. You and the term was always this: using the minimum amount of force necessary to bring the situ- to subdue the situation and bring it into order. Every police officer knows that if he's been trained. If, they, if they're certified, state certified, which they're all supposed to be, to be on the force, they know that they're supposed to de-escalate, not come and draw the weapon and escalate and use deadly force. So let me ask um, another question. Um, speaking of that deadly force concept, now, we, we live in an age of great technological advancement, and at least for the last 10 years I've been seeing demonstrations, some of them comical, I will admit, um, of tasers and other apparently non-threatening, uh, I shouldn't say non-threatening, but less threatening certainly than a firearm. Is, are, these not, are these not being used in local municipal forces or any feedback at all as far as that's concerned, the, 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 not, the yeah, not using uh, tasers it, in situations like this? All, all forces don't, all of the police officers don't have tasers. I know back in DeKalb County we have uh, tasers, and I can remember about eight years ago the SDLC told um, um, the, the uh, taser people that they had not had enough testing to be using tasers, so we slowed them down a bit on that because we had, they had killed a guy in Gwinnett County uh, tasing him. Okay. Then again, a, a mental process. But uh, use, use of force, you have, you have all kinds of levels of use of force. Number one, you must use a verbal use of force. That's the first one. That's the verbal, the tone of voice. If you're dealing with a patient that has mental issues, tone of voice can either escalate it or de-escalate. Um, uh, then if you've got, uh, um, so the ver- ver- first one is verbal. Uh, after that, you've got a, 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 a whole list of different things depending on which department you're in. The next thing you've got is baton. You know, you've got batons. Uh, most of them carry batons of some type, the extended German baton, um, you got then after the baton, you've got uh, tasers and and um, 
tasers and, and physical sub, sub, subduing techniques, and then uh, then you grade eight to uh, deadly force. And deadly force only means that uh, you have to use it to protect you or a fellow officer or some citizen. Uh, and de- deadly force has to do with a, um, a fleeing felon, uh, somebody that's done something egregious, and then they authorize deadly force early on. So those are those are circumstances which require that. But uh, I was I was surprised and a bit shocked to see the police officer come to the scene with his weapon drawn and uh, shoot the man down like he did, uh, even though he had a knife. Um, I, it, uh, he, it didn't seem like he was trying to de-escalate. And then again, it may have been a mental issue um, there as well. So I'm not sure. I mean, I don't know all the circumstances. Well, again, it sounds like that uh, you have made some progress there on the ground as far as communicating with the officials there and uh, trying to see whatever can be done, whatever assistance. And also, I, I think what I really am picking up from you and listening is that you're trying to glean information that not only can help there in Ferguson, but then can be translated to other areas because although... Uh, this is the latest situation that we have in the newspaper. We certainly is not uh, the, you know, this is a, a common theme going across in our cities. I know I grew up outside of New York City, and obviously we know the, of the three or four major events that happened there uh, with uh, young men being shot almost virtually in cold blood. Uh, we know about the Dialu case uh, where he was shot, I think, in excess of 40 times by police officers. Right. So there we need to find some way to get this done. Well, we're going to have to engage white folks. Now, our problem is that we're not talking about engaging the white community. So the white community sees police always as their protector. We see police sometimes as our oppressor and abuser. We're going to have to have a dialogue over that, and we're going to have to engage the white community. This is not a circular discussion inside the black community. We need to stop that because um, this, this, the officer right now has already um, uh, raised something like uh, $200,000 for his defense. They've already put a website up, uh, protect blah, 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 on and on. So the white community feels attacked when you tell them that the police have killed somebody uh, uh, unnecessarily uh, or as an abuse of authority. The white community believes, based on what they, they say and do and how they go about doing this, they believe that you're attacking them. And, uh, and the police, their protector. Uh, and we as black people know that you have to deal with all types of police. Um, you've got good officers and you've got some that, that are not, not so good. And so um, depending on what area you're in as a black person, the police mean a whole lot of different things uh, to, to black people than they do to white people. We're going to have to have that discussion. We're going to have to deal with that particular dynamic because what's happening is we're being we're being segregated uh, on a social uh, uh, system and schism uh, being 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 uh, separated uh, in our thinking and our response to um, what's happening. Uh, you got Trayvon Martin in Florida. You just had the young man in New York to be choked out by the police when they had five or six folks. They could have easily subdued him. He wasn't really trying to resist. Just telling them I can't breathe, but. The white community saw that as, oh, uh, the police needed to subdue him. Um, and I can remember as far back as 
Rodney King, the president, then George Bush the first, uh, got on the TV and said, oh, I think justice was done. I think uh, justice was done. And uh, so the, the, the disparity of fault is, is, is what's right now um, the most serious of the things other than the, the, the young man being killed. Um, uh, it, it is, it is, it's, we've got to do some work on that. And we need to focus on that and stop being distracted by, oh, he was a thug, oh, his parents are sagging, oh, we've got black-on-black crime in Chicago and Detroit and blacks are killing blacks. And all of those are distractors that have nothing to do with the dynamics around Mr. Brown being uh, shot by a police officer. All police officers are trained to use force. They are also our trusted agents. We give them a badge and we give them a gun to protect us and not shoot unarmed teenagers. I don't care what the circumstances are, that that is not justifiable, and, and the white community is saying that it is. And some of the black community is distracted by these other things that I've talked about. It's kind of dis- disheartening for me to look at the way uh, five or six different factions are talking. It, it's almost crazy. Uh, we're going to have to focus on these issues and try to get some dialogue and try to put something into the uh, police training curriculum that would allow them to know what to do. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned that because I had the uh, opportunity to visit a uh, church uh, here in Atlanta. Uh, the young man has, uh, the Lord has blessed him to uh, move quite to the forefront here uh, as far as pastors in this area and even nationally. I'm talking about uh, Reverend Dewey E. Smith at uh, Greater Travels Rest. And it's interesting that during the service he addressed this issue, and that's exactly what he talked about, that the need for an actual honest and candid conversation uh, with people uh, who are white and people who are non-white to just sit down and look at one another in the eyes and look, this is the situation that has to be handled, especially as Christian and believers, because we know more so than anybody else that we are of one, uh, one parentage. And so the idea mm-hmm. that one of us can be looked at different than the other is a direct opposition of the scripture that we claim to believe. So there's no question that, um, that there is a mindset out there. I think the time is right, and I think that maybe it might be a situation where, ironically, the name of the show is called The Clarion Call. Clarion Call has to go out, uh, you know, to people like uh, Reverend Stanley Sr. and his son as well. Uh, I don't want to call people out necessarily by name, but I've known of these gentlemen and enjoyed their ministries. We have guys right down here at First Baptist Church in Jonesboro that maybe it's time for us to engage these gentlemen and say, hey, listen, we have to discuss this and get this on the table because it's not, mm-hmm. it's not right scripturally speaking. <laughs> right well, off yeah, the bat, and, you, of course, you, it's not a human thing as well. You made, a, uh, you made the most specific point of all times. Uh, our whole process is that you cannot live unless you live under God's tutelage. You're not living. You can exist, you can function, you can do a whole lot of things, you can be professional, but you cannot live until you hear from the true and living God. Now, uh, when, you, when you mention uh, that, we, religion, uh, Christianity is seen by two different factions. Uh, what we're really seeing sociologically is a refighting of the Civil War. Uh, and both sides believe that God was talking to them, both sides. And, and they fought and killed 600,000 to a million men over that argument, believing that God was saying to one side, oh, um, uh, we are inherently superior because of our white skin. 
and they need to be slaves because that's the way it's been. And the other side saying, no, we cannot exist half slave and half free. So we, that's where we, right after the Civil War, the, the laws were put in place to help to free uh, the ex-slave or the or those in former servitude. Now, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment. All of that law is under attack from the conservative right and the evangelical right because they understand, have been taught another history that they were put upon and that they were getting ready, ready to get rid of slavery and all that, and they still teach that. It's a lie. It's not true. They were, they were going to keep slavery. They were fighting to keep slavery. They had fought violent uh, interactions in Kansas and Missouri uh, for years uh, trying to make more slave states. So uh, now the revisionists in history have decided that that's not so. So the white community believes then uh, the, the, the lost cause, they believe in the right for the Confederate process under the Christian banner now, which you don't understand. So when you engage people, they have been taught a different history than you have. And, and you, when you talk to them, they will tell you that, oh, this, these things are not really legitimate laws because we were not involved in the making of them. So there's a whole movement on the right, on the white right, uh, to denigrate the um, African and slave history to the point that um, the, 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 the classroom books in Texas now say that all slaves were really immigrants. You were not brought here as a slave. You were an immigrant like everybody else, and nobody understands why you are different and behind and need to be treated differently culturally than any other group because you're the only group that stayed here 400 years under chattel slavery. Now, that, not many want to talk about it, but it has to be dealt with from that perspective. You can't just say, oh, we're all Christians. No, because white supremacists believe they're Christians. The Ku Klux Klan believe that they are Christians, really, uh, and they were under the Christian matter. And they believe that a great number of them have talked to me across the world and said, uh, why are you following the Christian matter, Mr. Mostella? Reverend Mostella, I said, because I know God is who he says he is. They say, oh, but you're cursed by the curse of hand, and you are not going to be able to get into heaven or be accepted as a true, full-fledged Christian because of the curse of man. And they believe it, and they teach it in their churches. And so when you start talking about Christian, you need to understand what brand of teaching that people understand and what they really believe. You can't use a title to do it. You've got to drill down and get to the nuances and the real belief and value systems and mores that people live by and emote from and make their decisions from. And it's not just Christian in that we're all Christians. No, it's a lot more complicated than that under the Christian banner. Well, certainly I appreciate uh, all the information and education that's going forward. It is no doubt that uh, there is a multitude of schisms and schisms uh, within the belief system, uh, but there is underneath all of that somewhere an inherent truth um, yes. of a basic, a basic thing, and when Christ himself was here, uh, he spent very little time addressing the multitude of laws that were on the books through the Torah and through the Mosaic teachings. He said everything is boiled down basically into these two tenets, love the Lord your God 
with all thy heart and all thy strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And then he brought the example of the neighbor being a Samaritan who was hated by the Jews. So I think that Christ once and for all addressed the issue so that those that stand in opposition against that are people who are misinformed. But we're running right up against the uh, the time frame here. I'm going to try to see if I can get some extended time here granted to us. Uh, But uh, certainly for those of you who just tuned in, we are broadcasting here with a live report from Reverend Motzeller directly from the ground in Ferguson, Missouri. He is the president of the Georgia SCLC. We also have on the line who's been uh, holding and listening, uh, Reverend Lionel Gant, also from the SCLC, who has been very aggressive here in dealing with issues of youth violence and mass incarceration. Reverend Gant, really quickly, any comments uh, of what you have heard from your brother, Reverend Marcella? I love my state president. You know, he, he quick to pull my chain. He quick to to to, to uh, set me down and tell me what I'm doing right. But he's a man of God. He's quick to tell you when you're doing wrong, and and that's what I love about him because he he never changes. And I, I thank God for him. Uh, and I know the work that we're doing up there is going to be uh, effective and it's going to be for the long term. And that's what we're looking at. We, we you know we don't want to be reactive. Whereas as soon as something happens, we want to run out there and react to it. We want to be proactive. Well, we're already setting things in place to 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 bring about change in our community. So I want to kick it back to uh, Reverend Marcella so that he can uh, keep us informed. Yeah, Reverend Gant is um, a hero. Reverend Minister Simmons, if I can admit, he's a hero. Um, Reverend Gant had to pick up nonviolence and incarceration on his own monies. Uh, we've run it on a shoestring budget for about the last eight years. I've been right in that with him all the way as the state president, and we appointed him as the um, the director of our effort in nonviolence because it was Dr. King that said it's going to be nonviolence or non-existent. And, and, and so he has really been dedicated to it year after year, and he's been pulling the, the wagon and mostly by himself. So both people need to help him uh, in that effort. Um, SCLC is very diverse and always has been. Um, Dr. King fixed it that way, and he organized it that way. And uh, we, we really get on to attack. A lot of people attack us because we are not uh, structured like any other civil rights organization. We're structured as a Christian organization under God. And so our, our uh, mantra is the moral process of trying to hold a moral high ground while we deal with those things that are real and reality because right now we most of us dealing from are dealing from a stereotypical point of view or a theoretical uh, point of view and it's not it's not what's happening in our society we're going to have to deal with the reality of where the people are and they are many places they're not just in one place and right now it's very difficult to get a message out that resonates with great numbers of folks. There's a whole whole generation, maybe two generations, that basically anti-religious, anti-Christian. And uh, I run into them all the time. And I have to go back and teach, teach basic Bible study because they've been unchurched forever. And the churches are basically preaching to the saved. Not doing anything with the unchurched, and so we've got to really redouble our efforts there uh, to try to push the uh, push put, put the Christian mantra out in a real way that does something for the families that we have. And by the way, those families are 60% led by a single parent, 
and they are short of money being paid and underpaid. So we've got a lot of work to do. Well, again, we appreciate uh, the work that you have done along with Reverend Jan. I appreciate you taking time out uh, from your busy schedule in Ferguson, and we look forward to reconnecting with you when you return to Atlanta. Uh, we have reached the end of our time of this broadcast, but for those of you who want to hear this broadcast again, it is going to be available via archive. You can go to the website, www.wrtsfm, uh, and look for the blog, the blog Talk Radio portal, or you can go directly to Blog Talk Radio at blogtalkradio.com forward slash wrtsfm. You can also follow us on Twitter at wrtsfm. And please go to our Facebook page and like the page, WRTS-FM. Well, we like to close every broadcast the same way. We appeal to those of you who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, your personal Savior. I will guarantee you that he loves you, and he has a plan for you that far beyond anything that you can think or hope. And as I close this broadcast, I say to you, as we do each week, God bless you, and have a great day. Gentlemen, thank you so much, and be blessed. Well, God bless you, too, and God keep you.